It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. And welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Thursday night, September 10th, the year of our Lord, 2020, back here in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. Nice weather outside, and we got a jam-packed show inside the studio tonight. Director Colin alongside. I'm Josh Pate. So happy to have you with us. We have got so many different places to go. I don't know how we're going to get it all in in less than an hour, but we will, believe me. Uh, thank you so much for the subscriptions. Thank you so much for all the comments. Um, I'm reading every single one of them, the emails as well. Late Kick Extra Podcast, two a week we're doing now, have been doing phenomenal. Told about a five-minute story on today's Late Kick Extra about my feelings on the movie Dante's Peak. So you get all college football plus cinematic reviews from yours truly. We got to talk Big Ten tonight. We have got brand new, fresh, hot off presses intel about the Georgia quarterback situation that I'm going to get to in just a few minutes. We have also got several leans and predictions and feelings about some week one matchups coming up this weekend. And also, there are several different places in the SEC right now where there are things going on in camps that we have to talk about. All that plus my reasoning for picking Texas to go to the college football playoff. Let's get right to it. We've got no time to waste. The Big Ten's a disaster right now. I don't really think that's up for much debate. Uh, Let me remind you, we had some breaking news. Just before I went on the air, I was reminded Central Arkansas is currently one and one on the season. Central Arkansas one and one on the season. Meanwhile, it's still unsafe for the Big Ten to play college football. Now, here is a list of what is safe. Pee-wee football, junior high football, high school football, G5 football, pro football, intramurals, all those are fine. Big Ten football, no. And that's where we're at today. Again, it is September 10th, the year of our Lord, 2020. This is headed down several bad roads for the Big Ten. I don't think that's a mystery anymore. From August 11th, when the decision to postpone this season was made, until today, September 10th, Ryan Day, head coaches in the Big Ten. I talked to some board of Regents members in the Big Ten this past week. No one has heard anything. No one has any further reasoning. No one has been told, and this is an important point to remember, no one's been told what the threshold that needs to be met is. What are the parameters? Now, intentionally, they've been left in the dark on that because if you got some folks who don't want to play football, which they absolutely have to some degree up there at this point, if they give you the data points, if they give you the threshold, if they give you the line in the sand you need to meet, well, you might just meet it. And then what are they going to do? They'll have to let you play. So that's where they are right now. If you missed it today, Colin, I think you've got the, uh, the actual graphic of Ryan Day's statement that he put out on Twitter. Think about what I just said. It's 2020. We have Twitter and we have head coaches at Ohio State, Penn State. James Franklin did the same thing. That is the mode of communication being used to get in touch with the Big Ten League office. You have zero communication. Right now, Kevin Warren... And some of these university presidents might as well be on the International Space Station. No one knows where they are. This is what Ryan Day said today. If you're listening on the podcast side, I won't read the whole thing. But essentially, it says, you know, while I understood the initial decision, I don't understand what's happening now. Uh, These young men, the parents have asked me, Ryan Day, so many questions I don't have the answer to. But the one that hurts the most is, why can these other teams and players play and we can't? Duke is playing Notre Dame. Clemson's playing Wake Forest this weekend. Our players want to know 
Why can't they play? To be perfectly clear, the goal here, amongst Ryan Day and several other power players and coaches and whatnot, and some administrators even, and some presidents in the Big Ten, is to get back to football in October. Okay, that's still on the table. They have not given up on that quite yet. But this is headed down many, many a bad road. I find it inconceivable that a month almost to the day has gone by since that decision was handed down, and you've still got the highest of high-profile figures in the Big Ten. Leaders, head coaches, who are openly telling you, I don't know anything more than you do. We've had coaches reach out to us and say, what are you hearing? Like, on what planet is that what you would expect to happen? Folks asking you in the media, I'm I'm supposed to be the one asking you what's going on, not the other way around. So everyone's in the dark there. And then, of course, as soon as Ohio State and Ryan Day released that statement today, uh, just total and complete embarrassment from certain national college football media types regurgitating the same tired talking points, almost in unison, by the way. At least hide that you're a mouthpiece. If you're a mouthpiece for the Big Ten League office, that's fine. Everyone lives their life the way they want to, but at least check out what your peers are putting out and change the phrasing up a little bit. Okay, When you, when you get the talking point sheet, at least rearrange some letters in the alphabet soup that they give you before you release. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. It's just so embarrassing and so disingenuous for a lot of people to say, well, Ohio State, all they really want to do is compete for a national championship. Yeah, you got a good reason why they shouldn't be able to? Because that's kind of what this guy Ryan Day is asking. He's not saying definitively, we got to overturn this. What he's saying is, uh, unless you've got some information that you come across that you haven't given us yet, then I'd like to overturn it. So You know, maybe Ryan Day should question an official, because I bet he'd hear from the league office really quickly. He'd probably have missed calls on his phone by the time he got back to his office. Maybe he should put on like a sweatshirt that's not league approved. Maybe that's the best way to get in touch with the league office right now if you're Ryan Day. But I, as I said earlier, spent several hours over the past week uh, both reaching out to and being reached out to by members of boards of regents in the Big Ten. And you would expect oh, you probably heard a whole lot of stuff that we don't know, and that's not the case. A few things here and there, but by and large, it's a lot of, we have been left in complete and utter silence. Our president did not come to us the first time around when the supposed vote was taken. They have not come to us about any potential revote. We don't know what's happening. It's become precedent here for non-disclosure agreements to be signed by university presidents. Those of you who are journalists and who are in the world of reporting might want to dig a little deeper on that. Uh, That's not necessarily my place, but I digress. Those non-disclosure agreements by presidents meant to stonewall your own boards of regents. That's interesting. But anyway, here's what I kept getting told. And I have made the same observation. It just helps to have it kind of verified from uh, more informed sources. It seems like no one has reassessed their opinion since July. The folks who were on the side of the fence where it's too dangerous to play, here's the fact. The fact is, if the Big Ten league schedule was set to kick off in late July or early August, they couldn't have started it. And I don't think anyone among us is really arguing that. That was not a, a point in time where it was probably safe to conduct a season. The problem is everyone dug their heels in and then contrary to what you've been told, and that being that politics only entered the equation a couple of weeks ago, politics have long since entered this equation and everyone dug their heels in and it's like a debate. Most of the time debates are kind of ineffective because everyone just becomes further entrenched in the corner that they're in. 
So that's happening. I've, I've tried to maintain an open mind on this. It's why every single segment we've done, including this one, I've said, if you've got someone from the league office that walks towards a podium tomorrow, five minutes from now, we can break in the show if you do and just tell you unequivocally, here are the numbers, here is the data, here's what we needed to have met that didn't get met. No one's done that. And so until they do that, you've got goalposts that are moving. It's like trying to play football, but it's like on a waterbed. Everything just kind of keeps moving around and no one can really make any informed decision and no one really knows what's going on, but no one is bothered to reassess. I don't get the sense, even up to and including this moment, that university presidents that are on the other side of this thing have taken five minutes to reassess and to look at data that is dated, okay, early September as opposed to late July. Things have changed. Things continue to change. In fact, the only constant here has been change. So I would at the very least hope that people are open-minded enough to do that. But then again, that would be under the misguided notion that this is still about health and safety. And I don't think it's been about that for quite a while. So a few things we do know before we move on here. The next few days are really big on the legal front. I'm not going to bore you with that, nor am I an expert enough to even dive into that. But the next few days are really important on that front. Number two, it's obvious from looking at what Ryan Day and James Franklin and several others, uh, Nebraska's been very outspoken about this, have said over the past 24 to 72 hours, really the past several weeks. But most recently today, they haven't given up on the idea of an October start. Now, it may be rapidly fading, like hope may have been rapidly fading for a little while now, but they haven't given up on that. The third thing we know is if you don't make a move, like if the Big Ten maintains this stance, you are doing so much collateral damage to your conference, to the integrity of your brand. Some is obvious. I don't think others are obvious. I want you to think for a second. If you maintain this stance and you never present anything more conclusive than what's already been presented, think about how your brands are viewed. Think about how your head coaching jobs are viewed. Think about how your coordinator jobs are viewed. Think about how elite recruits look at you in comparison to other conferences that are not only playing football, but if they pull it off, like if they go wire to wire and they don't have major problems, egg on the face doesn't nearly do the justice as to how real the collateral damage will be for the Big Ten. And here's the bad part. The bad part is they know it. When I say they, I mean folks like Ryan Day, some of these presidents who are on board with playing, some of them know it. A lot of these Board of Regents members, they know it. And they also know that the folks on the other side of the table from them are making decisions that are contrary to what they want to do for all the wrong reasons. So people up there know it. So you want to know where that frustration is coming from. That's where it's coming from. And so I don't know how this ends. I do think one way or another, as it relates to October football, I mean, by default, we'll know one way or the other over the next few days. I mean, we'll coming out of this weekend for sure, you'll know one way or the other because at that point, even the calendar is not going to let you do anything other than starting in November by the very earliest. But just what an absolute disaster. Again, to summarize this day, the head coach of Ohio State University found it necessary to take to Twitter to voice his complaints because he can't get in touch with the league office. What a world we live in. What a world. We got some information. I sent the rundown to Colin earlier today, and we were gonna we were gonna talk about the Georgia quarterback situation regardless. But got some information today that I thought we needed to do a segment on. 
you'll recall Jamie Newman, who was the presumed favorite to win the Georgia starting quarterback job, who transferred in from Wake Forest. If a lot of you, and I understand a lot of you are just now coming back to the college football table. So yeah, you, you may have bought a preview magazine and you saw Newman's going to start for Georgia. And okay, well, he opted out last week. And you'll remember the rapid reaction we did there was such that we thought that eh, we're not going to arrive at the conclusion that he was chased off. We'll take him at his word. He had concerns. So whatever the case may be, Jamie Newman's out of the equation. We were focused on who is there. And who is there is JT Daniels, who transferred in. And there was a big deal made when he transferred in from Southern Cal, former five-star guy in his own right. And you just assume, and I assumed, if you did right along with you, well, that's the overwhelming leader in the clubhouse. And you heard names like Dewan Mathis, and you heard names like, uh, you know, Carson Beck, true freshman. But really, I was kind of dismissive, especially with Dewan Mathis, who was more realistic. I was kind of dismissive when I talked about Dewan Mathis. I just assumed once Daniels is clear for contact, that's going to be the guy. I mean, that's the guy. And I was wrong. So it's time to do our first big flip-flop of the year. We were wrong about that based on the latest things that we've heard. So there is, at the very least, a major quarterback competition happening at Georgia right now between JT Daniels and between Dewan Mathis. Dewan Mathis' story in and of itself is incredible. So I would encourage you, if you don't know a lot about him, and maybe even some of you Georgia fans who are casual fans don't know a lot about him, check him out. I will say this. Ohio State, uh, bar none, has done as good a job at recruiting and identifying and developing quarterbacks as any program in America the last decade. He was good enough to get an offer from them. He was good enough in their evaluation process. So anyone who questions his ability to play quarterback, okay, well, I would, I would just give you cause to pause a little bit there. Impressive physical specimen. I think just in the film that Colin's showing you, that stands out pretty readily. But information, it's important for me to note this, from multiple different sources on this. I was talking with some of our friends over on the Dogs 24-7 board today. I saw some of you assume, oh, well, I mean, he's just kind of regurgitating what he saw here. That's not true. I do that all the time. When I do it, I cite Dogs 24-7 or Rusty or Jake or Kip or whoever the case may be over there. A little bit different situation here. So I've seen what the guys over at Dogs 24-7 have been saying. In fact, they've been kind of intimating at it for quite a while now, ever since Newman left. I was slow to buy into that. So if anyone, it was me who was behind, and it was them leading the way. But when I first heard that, and I first heard guys like Jake Rowe and Kip and Rusty over on Dogs 24-7 saying, hey, this is a real battle now. This is a real position battle. I didn't buy into it, and I buy into it now. And the thing that I was told by both folks that I spoke to just today about this, the thing I was told is ultimately the staff is learning along with pretty much everyone else on Dewan Mathis, but they think he's just going to be too good to keep off the field. An absolute physical specimen. He is a guy who can, in terms of arm talent, do everything you want to, but he brings a level of athleticism. He brings the ability to do things in the option game, he brings the ability to fall forward for two or three more yards when you want to go QB power that maybe JT Daniels wouldn't be able to. And so, yeah, it took me a little while on this, but I'm fully on board now. I'm so on board that I wouldn't be shocked at all and probably lean a little bit more towards Mathis ultimately being the starting quarterback at Georgia this year, just to give you an idea of how serious I think this competition is. But now that we've nailed that down, what's a deadline? Because this is really important. 
you think about the skill sets here, these are not similar quarterbacks. JT Daniels and Dewan Mathis are not similar. And this is not a team, as I keep saying, that's aiming for hopefully a 5-5 five and five or a 6-4 record. This is a national championship contender. This is an SEC championship contender. And so they got to get stuff figured out here. They can't afford to lose games. Their schedule's front-loaded. They got to get it figured out. And so I would imagine, you know, they don't start this week, but it's coming up. September 26th is coming up pretty quick. And after that opener at Arkansas, they got Auburn, they got Tennessee, they got Bama, they got Kentucky. They boom, 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 boom. They got a bunch of losable games. They got to get it figured out because they got to get some first team reps to Mathis. If he hasn't already been taken enough, you got to get it to him. And keep in mind, you got a new offensive coordinator in the house there. They got to decide what offense they're going to roll with because Unlike maybe the case if you had a couple of similar quarterbacks here, you know, if this were JT Daniels versus Jake Fromm, you probably run in similar offense regardless of who's in. You got totally different offensive personnel packages. You got totally different philosophies and schemes behind what you're going to be able to do with Dewan Mathis versus JT Daniels. I don't think that they will announce anything, period. I don't think there'll be some deadline put out there. They may not even tell the players this, but I guarantee you that coaching staff internally knows clock's ticking. In other words, this is not some situation where I expect it to roll two or three weeks into the season, and it's just an open quarterback competition even into the season. You're not going five and five. You're not going six and four. You're looking to win. You got to have a QB one, and you got to figure it out sooner rather than later. So, to be clear, restating what I didn't say, what I didn't say is this is decided. If anything, it is one of the most heated quarterback battles in the country right now. What I am saying is Dewan Mathis is absolutely in this. It could even be that I lean towards Dewan Mathis to be the ultimate starting quarterback for Georgia. And listen, if you take the defense that you think you know Georgia's going to have this year, and I think they may have the best one in the country, and you talk about the style of play that's probably more beneficial and more advantageous for them to adopt offensively, and you throw out this notion that they're going full air raid this year, which they never were going to do and especially aren't now, I'm not so sure that if they can get Mathis up to speed, I'm not so sure that his skill set doesn't better equip them, doesn't give them a better shot at ultimately realizing those goals they have than JT Daniels at this point. So really exciting all of a sudden the quarterback battle has become if it wasn't already for you at Georgia. Elsewhere in the SEC, got a lot going on. And SEC, again, a couple of weeks from kicking off. ACC's kicking off this week, but SEC still got a couple of weeks. Texas A&M has been my number two predicted in the SEC West for a little while now. Uh, pretty clear-cut number two, at least when I you know, put the numbers together that we'll talk a whole lot more about next week. Jamon Osmond is a key for them. He is a wide receiver. He's an experienced guy. Uh, he's one that you have penciled in. and Well, not even penciled. you just written his name in pen. And so our guy, Brian Peroni, in Jimbo Fisher's press conference, I believe it was today, asked Jimbo Fisher, you know, this is, this is a good observation, man. He said, we hadn't really seen Jamon Osmond. Uh, is, he, is he okay? Where, where's he been? And Jimbo Fisher said, uh, well, he's taking time to reflect on some things. Huh. Well, okay. Well, he didn't say he's out of the program. In fact, Jimbo Fisher went on to specifically say, now, he's still with us, you know, kind of in the sense that my several years old boxer back home. He's still with us. So Jamon Osmond, he's still with us. I don't know what in the world that means, but to say the least, there is some concern in Aggieland because you keep in mind, they've also lost Baylor Cup again. Now they got some talented options behind him. And for that matter, they got some talented young guys at receiver. Established, experienced. I don't know that I could view them as that. And this is another situation where 
They may get Vandy in week one. They got Bama in week two. So if you want to make some noise in the SEC West, you got to be clicking on all cylinders. you got to experience a quarterback. Who in the world he's throwing to? Not so sure right now. Now, this could all be rendered moot if we see Osmond back at practice tomorrow or next day. So keep an eye on that. At Tennessee, offensive strategy, offensive philosophy, I don't think there's much mystery what Jeremy Pruitt and Jim Chaney, more specifically, are trying to do there this year. Now, a lot of folks have made a big deal, rightfully so, about keying in on programs that return the same head coach and the same offensive coordinator and the same quarterback and most of the same offensive line talent. And Tennessee fits all these descriptions, but yet the same people who make those arguments would never in a million years circle Tennessee as a team to watch. Why? They don't believe in the personnel. They don't believe in Jared Garantano. I'm not going to sit here and tout him as a preseason All-American by any stretch of the imagination, but what I am saying is Jeremy Pruitt probably looking at the situation and saying, we open against South Carolina. We think we're better than them. We think we've got a better roster. They've also got questions at quarterback right now. They don't have it nailed down. Week two, we play Missouri. We're just flat out better than them. Week three, we play Georgia. They have no clue who their quarterback's going to be. So we at least have continuity and consistency there. We know who it's going to be. We're not trying to install all this new stuff on the fly on a condensed, truncated timetable. And so we could shock some people. But the way we're going to have to do it is not by throwing the ball 55 times in a game. We've got to take a sledgehammer to people's kneecaps. That's how we can beat them. We got the offensive line to do it. We got the running back skill to do it. And so we got to be consistent enough offensively. But see, that only works if your defense is taking care of things. And I don't know how many of you have been paying attention. Out of Knoxville recently, there's been some really, really tough love being dealt by this guy, Jeremy Pruitt, to his defensive front. Not even the first time he's done it. This week was the latest example, but he's been very critical of them. And I don't... I don't think it's for show. I don't think it's window dressing at all. I don't think he has liked what he's seen at all from the lack of pressure that they've been generating. I think they've been very poor at tackling. And you say, oh, well, that's to be expected. No, it's not to be expected. It may be to be excused in some people's eyes, but this is not a program who has five and five aspirations either. Their Vegas over-under win total may be floating around there, but Jeremy Pruitt doesn't care about that. That guy wants to win the East this year, not in 2023. And so... I think they've got the horses defensively. I don't think they're lacking for bodies, but you know we've seen with Texas, for example, we've seen Brennan Eagles at Texas, guy who's a returning starter, and so you just assume, all right, well, you know, I'm the leader in the clubhouse now. No, guy's been bypassed, still going to play, but he's been bypassed. I think they may have a little of that that's crept into the Tennessee locker room too. Still got a little time to rectify that, but man, he's been very critical. Uh, check out some of those sound bites. It's just he has made he's pulled no punches when talking about his defensive front at South Carolina. A lot of sudden optimism about the offense. They got two quarterbacks that they think they can win with. Uh, Ryan Helinski was probably just assumed to be the starter. Colin Hill giving him a run for his money. A lot of people there believe Colin Hill probably even leads to a certain degree in that quarterback battle. Our folks over at TheBigSpur.com have had a ton of really money intel on that quarterback battle. I've been excited to read about Deshaun Fenwick. Coming out of this last scrimmage that South Carolina had, Deshaun Fenwick is a guy that I think they have to have step up because they lost Marshawn Lloyd, who was, even as a true freshman, going to be one of the breakout candidates in all of college football, regardless of position. And they lost him. And I mean, that was a gut punch. That was like one of those, you find out about it, you just want to go home the rest of the day. And so they need guys like Fenwick to step up. I really question, they just... 
You could prove me wrong. Of course, that always could happen. But I really question whether the personnel they have at places like receiver and offensive line, but really specifically guys like Fenwick, they have to have so many guys step up and play at a high level to put a competitive product on the field. And I'm sure a few will, but I'm talking about all of them doing it or a critical mass of them doing it. But I'll tell you another thing that has them excited. People who have been fortunate enough to watch practice there, a lot of them are excited about Mike Bobo and what you would refer to as kind of just more progression-based play calling. Now, it's very simple conceptually. That's just like playing chess, making a move with your next move and second to next move and third to next move all already in your head somewhere. Well, that's how the best play callers usually call plays instead of the Xbox crowd, which runs the you know, halfback keeper, and then we're going to run 10-yard slants. And like, you weren't even thinking about 10-yard slants when you called the halfback keeper. So that's just play to play to play. And right or wrong, the perception is that's what Brian McClendon was guilty of. So Mike Bobo, certainly not guilty of that. I didn't think anyone ever doubted that he would be guilty of it. But here's the big question that won't be answered for a while. I had someone today reach out to me and say, you know, just open-ended question. Do you think that some head coaches are just incapable of allowing their offense to succeed, allowing their offense to win. And so I took that, and I ran with it in the direction of Will Muschamp. That is the allegation against Muschamp. I think it is somewhat deserved. I, but I also think as much as you may make that claim, I could come back and I could counter and say, you know, Ed Orgeron, circa 2018, would never have allowed LSU circa 2020 to happen, or 2019 to happen. Because they had some of the same personnel. They handled it totally different. Ed Orgeron was smart enough to not allow his feet to get cemented into one way of doing things. And so he 180'd the entire offensive philosophy of the program. And he got out of the way. Will Muschamp's not done that to this point. Never has. Is this the first time, and here's the question, is this the first time Muschamp has got an offensive coordinator in the house that he fully trusts handing the keys to the car over to? That's the TBD. That is the to-be-determined with South Carolina. Florida is in a very good place. Florida was very wise, and Dan Mullen was very wise and somewhat lucky at the same time about how they front-loaded their practice schedule. What Mullen did is he said, all right, we got this much time to get this many practices in. Let's put all of our install, let's put all of our most physical work on the front end so that if we can't get it all in, we can push them down the line. But They went about it that way, and they got everything in. They haven't had big COVID outbreaks. And so as a result, they're miles ahead of a program like Tennessee right now who's had trouble, and they've had to delay practices and cancel practices or work with a skeleton crew. I mean, Mullen told the media down there yesterday or day before yesterday, I mean, we're going to do some conditioning. We're going to do some lifting over the next week. And that's not normally what you would hear a few weeks into camp. you got a couple of weeks till you're about to play. But he's almost treating it at this point like a bye week. And I feel really good about where they are. They open against Ole Miss, who has had just a nightmare internally dealing with COVID over there. So, you know, I've talked about Florida. It's the most exciting team to me to watch in week one. It will be the closest to a finished product offensively out of any of these contenders that we'll probably see in week one. So, you know, offensive line, some of the things you hear about that, uh, specifically maybe some guys who have worked their way back into the rotation. Is it a case where they've improved or do you not have any other options? You know, it's not, it's not like I'm ready to just put my full stamp of endorsement on the forehead of Florida, but I feel really good about where Florida is relative to maybe some of their other brethren in the SEC. The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount+. Plus. 
Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean and a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control Alt Desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. All right, we got to talk about some games that are coming up this week. How embarrassing. Just rubbing your hands together. I, I do that over Cinnamon Toast Crunch all the time. Um, Normal week's format is not what we're doing this week, first and foremost. So many of you have reached out and said, are you going to do the same things that you used to do? And the same things that we do are, so let me just go ahead and lay out the format for you. This coming Sunday, actually, we will have Late Kick Live, Sunday night, same time as always, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. I will release our first of five weekly plays against the number, and I'll do that on Sunday. It's the game we feel best about. It's the game that jumps off the screen to us. I'll release that on Sunday. I will release our final four, which equals five in total. Uh, We like to call it the Ramen Noodle Express. Namely, we're trying to keep you from having to eat ramen noodles with the plays that we give you, and so that totals five every week. Those usually come on Thursday. The last four usually come on Thursday, but if I got something that I feel like we need to move on, I may uh, call an audible and give you a couple of them on Tuesday. So basically, you need to watch every show during the week. Now, I'm not going to move on any games this week because we have a very abbreviated schedule and these numbers have been out too long. So I don't really think there's a ton of value out there. I will tell you where I lean in these three games, though. So if you are so inclined and that money is burning a hole in your pocket, here you go. Georgia Tech at Florida State. Fascinated by this one. Very interested to watch Georgia Tech in general. That is my number one sleeping giant program. Not necessarily in 2020, but in general. Love the depth chart approach, by the way, that Jeff Collins has taken. He calls it ATL, marketing genius here. It's called above the line, ATL. No depth chart, no ones and twos and threes. There's just a line. And if you're good enough, if we trust you to put you on the field, then you're above the line and you could play at any moment. In reality, there's probably still a depth chart. You just don't get to see it if you are writing for the you know, Orlando Sentinel, shall we say. So what about this thing? I mean, they can't be any worse. They were 127th were the Yellow Jackets in total offense last year. Uh, Mike Norvell's offense. Now, I was doing a lot of reading about Florida State leading up to this one. I'm really fascinated about how they're going to handle running back in this game and this season in general. Because uh, like a lot of people have pointed out, and they're right, at least on paper, it doesn't look like they have the raw talent at Florida State at running back that they normally have. They got Corbin, the transfer from Texas A&M, and they got Damian Webb, who came from JUCO. And I think he's really counting on those guys to be ultra versatile. He's counting on them to be physical enough, but he's also counting on them to be able to flex out of the backfield. I think they are very much hinge parts of this offense this year. Now, like every offense that's ever been installed in the history of mankind, they are swearing that they're going to use the tight end heavily. Mike Norville's got a track record of it. But what I'm telling you is I think those running backs and those two running backs in particular, the ones I just mentioned, keys in this game and also keys this year. Georgia Tech, the reason I think they probably will be able to hang around in this one is roster-wise, make no mistake, they'll still be outmanned. But what they do return from a pretty poor defense, admittedly, last year is they do have 20 of their top 21 tacklers back. And so if they're not missing any guys that we don't know about, then you you at least have comfort in the fact that you're going to have guys on the field who know what they're doing and not running around like chickens with their head cut off. 
But outside of that Florida State running game, uh, run defense was abysmal at times for them last year. I never got the sense it was because of a lack of talent or personnel. This thing right here, Florida State lacked last year, and I was pounding my chest for those of you listening. Heart wasn't there. So Kane Doe, all those guys on the front, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do against you know, a, a very abbreviated version offensively of what maybe they'll see down the road in Georgia Tech. But if that defense, if that run defense in particular is where it needs to be, and everyone's been raving about the defense down at Florida State, then they'll be able to virtually shut Georgia Tech down. Okay, that's what you should see. Now, the way I tend to think that this one's going to go is pretty low scoring. And I think that 13, if I were to lean one way or the other, I'd probably take the 13 with Tech. Uh, probably a little bit undervalued, a little bit underpriced on the market right now, Georgia Tech. The next one that I think a lot of people have pointed out as the dark horse game, so much so that it's not a dark horse game anymore, is Louisiana Lafayette at Iowa State. My Cyclones. So bias alert here. I got a rooting interest, but I also love Billy Napier. So maybe not. Um, It's a huge opportunity for Billy Napier and the Cajuns. Make no mistake about this. Now, last year, uh, those of you who watch college football religiously, you remember App State beating North Carolina and South Carolina. Georgia State beat Tennessee. Coastal Carolina beat Kansas. Like these teams made noise last year early. And so could be a a repeat here. And this is not some four or five touchdown number now. Right now, I think I checked it a couple hours ago, Iowa State favored at home by about 11 and a half. Really good balance for UL Lafayette. I have trouble calling them Louisiana, so I apologize. But really good balance here. Um, I think probably what I'm most excited to watch is they lost Uh, did UL Lafayette, a couple of the top receivers, and then really a guy that they hoped would lead them this year also lost to injury. So I count them as being down their top three receivers from last year, which means run to win. That's essentially what they're going to have to do here. And I love all three levels of Iowa State's defense. Just love them. Always love the way they play. They always overachieve relative to what the composite talent rating would indicate they should do defensively. Got four new offensive linemen, though. New wide receivers, but still got Brock Purdy. I remember this time last year that Iowa State team was about to play Northern Iowa, and they got pushed right to the limit against Northern Iowa. I think that serves me very well here because I don't think Louisiana Lafayette's sneaking up on anyone in Ames, Iowa. I think the um, way that a lot of people who know what they're doing in the betting world are going on this is taking UL Lafayette in the points. I'm actually going the other way. There's no bias involved in this. I was kind of messing around on that. I'm actually going to lay the points. I think it's one of those games that people overthink the room too much in in week one. So I'm going to lay the points with the Cyclones minus 11 and a half. The third one that I'm looking forward to the most is Duke at Notre Dame. Conference game. Going to be a conference logo. One of those ACC is going to be drawn on the field there at Notre Dame Stadium, first time ever. Um, There's been so much roster turnover at Duke. I don't know how much you guys have paid attention to this, but, you know, we're just paid to sit around and read about it all day. Um, Man, I don't, I don't, it's only like a 45 minute show, so I don't have time to go down the list of all the turnover, not just roster, their coaching staff's turned over. Cutcliffe just said, give it to me. And he's just offensive coordinator now. So he's the one calling plays again. Um, run game's going to be the focus here. i got to imagine. Notre Dame's still got a lot of moving chairs at wide receiver. They know that Duke is not settled in by any stretch of the imagination on either side of the ball right now. And so I really envision this one going probably the direction where, you know, you do enough in your passing game, but really, you know, there have been some surprise additions or really surprise names of starters at running back that 
have garnered a lot of attention in Notre Dame circles. And really, I think they want to showcase that run game in week one. Impose your will, lean on someone, do whatever you want to call it. And because of that, I think that there is a vastly superior roster here. 38-7, I think, was the final in this game last year. At 20 is a fat, fat number. But I am telling you, we've got it. My internal numbers have this thing right at Notre Dame as a three-touchdown win. It's probably a fourth-quarter decision, a garbage-time decision either way. I think Notre Dame wins it comfortably. I certainly do not advise this. But if I had to lean one way, I'd actually lay the 20 with Notre Dame too. So the leans here, and I want to stress the word lean, were tech Georgia Tech plus 13, Iowa State minus 11.5, and and Notre Dame minus 20. We will have official plays, stress the word official, next week, starting next week. All right, before we go, I had some comments in the YouTube comment section about Texas. I predicted the Longhorns to make the college football playoff. And someone, in fact, more than someone, many people said, that's a pick out of left field. I don't care if you disagree with the pick. I mean, we're not solving uh, state secrets here. We're not... Uh, curing cancer. We're just, we're talking about a college football playoff prediction, but you got to come at me with something better than Texas to make the playoff is out of left field. Uh, Current odds to win the big 12 title. OU minus 125 on the money line, Texas plus 175. I mean, that's like if you were playing a football game, being favored by a field goal, three and a half points or something like that. It's in other words, it's not out of left field at all. They are the second odds on favorite to win the big 12 this year. And the pick for me is twofold to explain myself. Uh, Number one, I just don't view this as any sort of a vintage Oklahoma team. So some of this has to do with Oklahoma. There is no one outside of Norman, Oklahoma and the surrounding community that is higher on the future of OU football than me. I have stated unequivocally, I think Lincoln Riley is winning a national title at Oklahoma. I love the direction that their defensive recruiting is heading. They got to lock some guys up, but I love what they're doing with their defensive roster. I love the direction it's headed. 2020 is not the future. 2020 is now. And when they released that depth chart the other day, someone here looked up and down that thing who knows the Big 12 pretty well and said, this just doesn't look like an Oklahoma roster. A lot of talent on it. Don't get me wrong. But normally when you look at an Oklahoma roster, there are like seven or eight names that just terrify you offensively alone. They don't have that right now. They don't have that. And uh, that's not common for them. So There's reason to be optimistic about the unproven talent they have at running back, but it's unproven, and I don't have a ton of confidence in it until I know about it. In other words, defensive line, I don't know how anyone's confident about that out there right now, and that's before you've played a game. So for that reason, just for the vulnerability I see in Oklahoma, that's part one, but part two, man, independent of vulnerability of anyone, I just loved what I've heard out of Texas the entire offseason and the entire buildup in uh, fall camp. Now, I want to stress the word heard because I haven't been able to watch anything. So you trust the people that have not led you astray over the years. The folks over at Horns 24-7, I think, have done about as thorough a job covering a preseason camp as anybody in our entire 24-7 network. Like, they've done a great job. Ton of information over there. Like him at quarterback, obviously, a 47th-year senior in Sam Ellinger. So you got to like that. Big-time talent at running back. Rashawn Johnson making a move there, and you got two other names you know you can already trust. And so I love at least three deep the level of winning talent that you have at the running back spot for Texas. But also, like I mentioned earlier, with a guy like Brennan Eagles, to me it's a very good sign. It's not a sign you should freak out about. It's a very good sign when returning starters are being bypassed for starting roles. Because sometimes it does mean someone doesn't have their you-know-what together. 
Sometimes it means that there's injury, but that's not the case here, I don't think. Now, I think that Eagles, maybe from the neck up, he's got some fixing to do, but it's not any kind of lost cause. Like, he's going to be a big-time player for Texas still this year. But Tariq Black just transfers in from Michigan. Tariq Black is their number one receiver right now. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Just like when you read practice reports and you look at defensive back and there are a lot of former starters that are having their jobs challenged, that's the way it is at every contending program. Look at the University of Georgia or Alabama, Ohio State in an alternate universe where the Big Ten is actually playing football. That's how every practice is. Every day it's like a knife fight. The hardest battles you have nine times out of ten during the week are practices. That's how champions prepare. Like, if you're trying to build that at Texas, that's what it should look like. So I'll give you a third reason, even though I said there were only two reasons here. Oklahoma uh, does not have time to ease into this thing. They get Iowa State and Texas right out of the gate, weeks two and three. They got K-State week one, which is not exactly a layup. Or uh, not week one, but the opening uh, week of conference play. They play on pay-per-view. It's like SummerSlam 1998. They play on pay-per-view to open the season. Um, and lastly, so I guess I had four points, Colin, not two. Lastly, for anyone who suggests that uh, this is such a roster disadvantage for Texas, no, it's not. We have a tool, one of the most valuable and, to me, underpromoted tools that we have on 247sports.com is the team talent composite. If you've ever sat around and wondered, oh, I wonder if I added up all the recruiting classes and all the transfers and all the star ratings and I can look at the current roster and just know how... Uh, supposedly talented the roster is, I wonder what that would look like. We have it. It's in the team talent composite rating. It's right there for free. Anyone can use it. Texas, nationally, number six right now. Oklahoma, nationally, number 10. So if anything, we would give Texas a slight advantage there. Is that talent being developed like it is at Oklahoma? That is for anyone to decide. We can have a separate conversation, a separate show to chop that up. But they've made good moves, have Texas, at coordinator, love what Chris Ash is going to do. I think I love what Yursik is going to do too. But I think it's the best team in the Big 12. So that's why I'm picking them to make the college football playoff. I hope I haven't been unclear. Uh, we have been on air for quite a while tonight, though. So really good show. Uh, lastly, I mentioned this at the start of the show the other day. I've mentioned it in all the podcasts that we've done this week. Our friends in Louisiana have to have our help. Our buddy Jim, who watches a lot of our shows and listens to a lot of our podcasts down in Cameron Parish, reached out the other day and just asked if we could deliver the message. Hundreds of folks still homeless down there, several weeks longer without power. I was um, looking at some of the NWS chat. I still have login. Don't tell anyone. But I still have login to the National Weather Service chat. And I was looking at some of the storm surveys. They're just now getting in to parts of Louisiana. I want Hurricane Laura is a distant memory. Only just now are survey teams, because of storm surge and impassable roads, able to even get into some parts of Louisiana. LSU has helped them out down there. UL Lafayette's helped them out down there. So I know a lot of staffers and a lot of admins from a lot of programs watch our show. Thank you for that, first off. Secondly, if you can spare anything, please find a way to send resources down to Louisiana because they need it really bad. I was talking to one of my buddies at Louisiana Tech the other day where they had now a well-documented outbreak of COVID because the hurricane ravaged them. And I mean, they essentially had to take shelter together. And as a result, you had an outbreak in COVID. They got to have help down there. So not only do I ask all our viewers to reach out and help however you can, uh, universities, programs, well-funded outlets uh, that you, you got some stuff to spare, hopefully. 
hopefully you'll spare it for our friends down in Louisiana. So uh, thank you for those who have reached out about that and trying to find ways to help. And I hope that uh, you, if you haven't already, will find every way in your power to reach out to help because uh, Louisiana, as I've said many times before, has a very, very, very special place in our hearts here at Late Kick. So I'm Josh Pate. This has been Late Kick Live for Director Colin, for Jordan on the podcast side. Thank you so much for watching. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Late Kick podcast and leave a five-star review as well. And subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. We will be right back here same time live, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, Sunday night. Until then, have a great rest of your week and weekend, and God bless.